Greetings, I'm Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. In the studio with me today is Guy Reed. Guy is an award-winning director, speaker, photographer, creator. He's an extraordinary gentleman. Looking forward to our time with him, hearing the stories of his life, what he has created, what it means to the built environment, and about what's coming up very soon. Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. I'm really glad that you joined me on This is Design Intelligence. Thanks for coming. I'm very happy to be here, and uh, I love design intelligence, and uh, obviously we're working together now, Dave, so I'm very happy to be here. So why movie making? I mean, you could have done anything in the world. You have an extraordinary educational background. You're a curious fellow, and you have you moved and have planted your stake in the art and the science of movie making. What got you into this, and and what keeps you in it? Well, it's a good question. I mean, I I never went to film school, and I I wasn't necessarily setting out to make films. But what ended up happening? Kind of a funny story. So I grew up in Bristol in the UK, and my friend and I, Steve Kennedy, we we used to go to these old bookshops and buy weird books, basically. We'd, we'd find stuff that looked interesting. We'd go home and read it. And we found um, lots of like really interesting ideas. And basically, we, we came across this book that was written in 1982 by a British physicist called Peter Russell. And another book called The Overview Effect by a guy called Frank White that came out in 1987. Both books were out of print. Um, you can buy them for like one pound each. And the book had the, both of them had astronauts talking about this experience they had in space. And it was this really profound uh, moment when I realized that there was another way of looking at the world. And these books had this really kind of big effect on Steve and I. So we went to the skate park where we used to skateboard and we gave the book to our friends and we bought loads of copies and we were like, look, you got to read this. It's going to blow your mind. And no one read it. <laughs> Not one single person. So Steve and I looked at each other and said, okay, we've got to make a film because we know that our, our friends will watch a film. So we we ended up, uh, this is when we were sort of 15. So Overview, our first film, our first sort of major film, short film came out uh, in 2012. So it took us a while and there was a sort of meandering path to get there. But basically it was the idea that you could share information and ideas in a very effective way through documentary film. Fantastic. And and you were just a kid for all intents and purposes when you guys came up with this. Yeah, it's strange now. When I meet 15-year-olds, I think, wow, these are children. But at the time, I felt very grown up. And, you know, I was going out into the world and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I think it's a really important time, that sort of 13 to 17 year old, just before you kind of go off to college, I feel like there's a really important formative period. And we were really lucky, honestly, just to have come across some really fascinating ideas that have really dictated my professional career and what I'm doing now and next. So yeah, it's um, the independent bookshop is a marvelous thing. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> what a wonderful thing. Overview, the movie has been viewed millions of times. Do you have the latest count on how many times this film has been pulled and viewed? So it lives in a few different places, but its main hub is Vimeo. 
And I think it has something like eight and a half million views on Vimeo. It's we actually we got a really nice email from Vimeo that we were one of the most watched documentaries on Vimeo. So that was great. <laughs> and and and, it, uh, and we never had any idea that it would go viral and 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 uh, get the idea out into uh, the world like it has. And uh, it's a strange thing. I become an American in August, and <laughs> I was watching the DNC conference and they used the idea and they and and president biden had talked about it and um president obama talks about it and so it's one of these really interesting ideas that's managed to get out there and um you know we we're friends with frank who wrote the book and and they attribute it to the film so it, it really the film really did do what we wanted it to do i mean we were only interested in our friends finding out about it but uh it, it gives me um hope about the power of documentary and its possibilities well that particular film overview is extraordinary and i would really encourage our audience to go out just write into google planetary collective or put in uh, overview the movie and what you'll find is a, a Google link. It'll usually let you into a few moments on the front end of it. You'll get to see maybe 10 or 15 minutes. But if you pull down the whole thing, it's extraordinary. If you are in the design community, this is a must-watch film. It will change your perspective on environmental responsibility. It pricks the heart, to tell you the truth. It lets us know directly what is being seen from the heavens about our wild, irresponsible behavior here on Earth. It's, it's extraordinary to see and to hear perspectives from, from astronauts who their lives were changed rotating around the Earth and looking at things. And it just, it's just extraordinary. You know, Guy, you and I met a few years ago almost by accident, if there is such a thing. I remember we were having a phone call and it was you and it was one of your colleagues, Christoph and I, and we were talking through some things and I, you know, Christoph was in London. And of course, with your very appropriate British accent, I was pretty sure you were in London and I was in my hotel room in Manhattan, having done some work there. We had this extraordinary discussion about life and philosophy and the world and the future and our individual journeys as we've made it through our lives, only to discover that you were actually in New York and we were both available for a cup of tea. And we ended up not far from each other, walking to a coffee shop or tea shop and shaking hands and spending a couple of hours together. You remember this? Very much so. Yeah, I was I was all the way across the East River <laughs> in Brooklyn. Wow. So I okay. think I think it took the J train. Took me about ah. so it was uh, it was it was great. I mean, I didn't realize you were in New York at the, at the time as well. And actually, it had a lasting effect because I I think sometimes you know I'm a big believer in sometimes you meet people and it feels like you can get straight to the point. It's almost like you've met them before, and uh, I definitely had that feeling with you and Christoph and I. Uh, we, we, we talked about that and, you know, that's kind of why I feel so uh, happy about our work, our future work together. Yeah. And um, it's funny, my friend coined this term, no spacesuit. My friend, Steve, who I mentioned before, and he said that when we met, when we were like 13, it felt like everyone he'd been talking to was wearing a spacesuit. And so it was quite difficult to hear what they were saying. It was almost like, you know, you couldn't quite clearly communicate. Um, but he said, when we met, it, it was like we had no spacesuit. 
And uh, ironically, we ended up making over you together, which is all about space and spacesuits. So I, I sometimes, when I meet people and I have that immediate connection, I think, right, no spacesuit. No spacesuit. And I, I feel like that with you, Dave. So it's, oh, fantastic. It's like, yeah. oh, I remember that evening. You remember we we yeah. we went over uh, back to Brooklyn and we went to the Terraform uh, one, um, Mitchell Joachim and his organization at the Naval Labs in, uh, in Brooklyn. And we had a wonderful evening. They were curating some of their work and we got an opportunity to fellowship with lots of wonderful, wild, intelligent people and walk through the lab and enjoyed ourselves. And it was like, it was like, it was always supposed to be, you know, being with all these like minds that were curious yeah, I remember these like incredible mushroom chairs that he showed us. <laughs> it was like a, a bench and it was made purely of mycelium. And it was like, you know, it felt almost like a sort of mixture of plastic and cement. And uh, it was intricate and laced. And uh, yeah, they're doing incredible things, <laughs> kind of yeah. mind boggling things out there. It, it really is. <laughs> so in, in just a little bit, we're going to talk a bit about a project that that you and and design intelligence are working on together. But before we go there, you know, you are one of those fellows that always has more than one line in the water. If you're going fishing, you'll have three or four different lines in the water, you know? So you're always doing multiple projects, multiple things. What other things are you working on out there that we might be curious about? Well, there's two things in particular might be quite relevant to the design world and to you guys. Um, the first one is pretty simple. It's essentially Overview 2. Uh, we're releasing, in the end of December, actually, we're releasing a film called uh, Overview Blue Marble. And it's a follow-up to Overview, our first film. And, and uh, Overview came out on the, we released it at Harvard um, on the 40th anniversary of the Blue Marble photograph, which was taken on the last mission to the moon, Apollo 17. And it's the very famous photograph that everyone knows. It's actually the most reproduced image in human history. So we, we released it on the 40th anniversary and we had two astronauts, one Jeff Hoffman, who's the head of, well, he was the head of aeronautics at MIT and Ron Garan, who's subsequently become a very close friend and uh, Douglas Trumbull, the late Douglas Trumbull, who actually was a remarkable man. He, he, he was a, he's a film director, but he also did all the virtual, um, all the VFX for Blade Runner for 2001 for Kubrick's, you know, incredible film and a variety of other films. And Doug was really interested in the Ovi effect. And, and then Frank White, who was teaching at the Harvard Extension School. So we it was a sort of small band of geeky space, <laughs> MIT, Harvard folks. And so we never thought it would blow up in the way that it did. And, and since then, we've become friends with a lot of astronauts. And so we, I've actually ended up filming in the last 10 years, I've filmed 38 astronauts and I've got, you know, at least an hour of them speaking. And so I'm probably going to round it up to about 50. And then this new film is going to be a sort of 10 year retrospective where our first film had five American astronauts. This film is going to have 50 international astronauts. And mm. I've specifically gone after people from different cultural, religious philosophical backgrounds. Um, there isn't many. It's only 570 people that have been to space. So there's a there's a sort of small slither of people that look like the rest of the world. And 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 regardless of those differences, they have this common universal human experience. So we're working on that. And uh, our idea is a very simple one, 
um, overview introduced us to the overview effect, this phenomena of feeling interconnected when seeing the planet from space. This film, Blue Marble, is to take that idea of the image of Blue Marble and make it into an idea. And so the idea here is that for the last 22 years, most people are unaware of this, but men and women have been living on the International Space Station uh, constantly. There's always been at least five or six people living there. Uh, sometimes it gets a bit bigger and cramped. Sometimes it gets a bit smaller, but there's always been men and women in space for 22 years. And that's been maintained by 15 different nations. 70 years ago, um, a lot of them were at war with each other, Japan, Germany, England, uh, America, Russia. And yet this space station has been maintained. Its life support system has been maintained. And in October of 2020, that life support system ran out. Um, well, it didn't run out. The oxygen ran out. And there was in the, in the Russian module of the space station, there was a, a major incident. And everyone, there was very important spacewalks going on. Um, there was important experiments happening. Uh, everyone on the space station and on the ground stopped what they were doing. All the different agencies stopped what they were doing, and they all went to fix the oxygen in the Russian module. And uh, it was remarkable, you know, very efficient. An interesting phenomenon happens. Those same six astronauts that experienced that come back down into a larger life support system whose alarm bell is ringing, um, but we don't have that same response uh, scaled up. So we see that small life support system of the space station, the large life support system of our home planet as a microcosm and a macrocosm. And so Overview uh, Blue Marble has this hopeful message that you know if we've behaved like this uh, in this incredible orbital laboratory, we can behave like this down on the ground. It's, it's totally within our reach. So that's Overview Blue Marble. Um, it's going to be same format as Overview, short film, and it's through a nonprofit that I started with a number of different astronauts called Constellation. And we're a nonprofit based out of NASA, well, Nassau Bay, so where NASA is located. And yeah, the whole message is to bring astronauts together to have this sort of um, universal uh, human response. And uh, we're also working with the Smithsonian Air and Space to create an archive, uh, which we're calling the Human Response to Spaceflight. And uh, Frank White has also been interviewing astronauts and out of uh, NASA Johnson down uh, in Texas. And yeah, we're, we're, we're basic. We realized that the Smithsonian doesn't have an archive. So we do, and we're a nonprofit. So we're going to donate it to them. And uh, that's, that's the OV Blue Marble. And then I'm doing another project, which is a immersive dome experience uh, with a company called Cosm. And uh, we're recreating that experience to some degree, but it's a little bit more artistic and more ecological in its endeavor. So that's, <laughs> that's quite a long update, but that's, uh, that's what we're doing. Oh, it's fantastic. And it's wonderful to hear that you're extending on what was there. It wasn't a one-trick pony. It is something that, that has life to it, and you're bringing this message of hope. This is a fantastic illustration about something breaking and all the everybody coming together to fix it, this depolitization of humans to just simply do what is right for the time that we need it done. And I love the idea of the micro and the macro uh, views of that. Would that we could scale 
our micro activities appropriately into a macro solution. Well, here we are, we're getting ready to do a big project together, Design Intelligence and your organization have come together and we're excited about what's around the corner. It all has to do with a book that we helped to underwrite and sponsor by Dr. Jonas Salk, um, the man who discovered the vaccine for polio that saved untold millions of lives over the many decades since. And um, it is an extraordinary project. Can you tell us a bit about what we're going to be jumping into? I think our audience would like to hear this. So it starts, it starts with the book, A New Reality, um, which was originally published in 1973. And then again, it, it was revised in 1981, but essentially was dormant. And uh, like you said, you guys helped bring the book back. But you know, I, I sort of see a parallel here with Frank's book, The Ovi Effect, um, incredibly important book, but it needs to be seen. It needs to be visualized. So I'm, I'm going to try and do what we've done before, which is to take a really important idea and visualize it through film and bring it to the world. And that idea is essentially Jonas and Jonathan Salk's unknown idea. So Jonas Salk, obviously most people are aware of him as bringing the polio vaccine to light in the mid-50s. He was a maverick character. Uh, it's quite an amazing story. He uh, he went to City College, New York, where my partner Carolina went as well. She's from New York, um, so he you know he he's he's he was a working class Jewish guy from the Bronx, and he was a maverick. And he, much to most people's amazement, um, through his maverick ideas, found this vaccine. And I think people don't realize how monumental this was. I mean, in the mid-50s, I mean, all the way through the 30s and 40s, polio was was the thing that Americans were most worried about. They were, you know, even compared to nuclear war with the Soviet Union, polio always was the thing that everyone was terrified about. And we've gone through a similar uh, situation in the last few years with coronavirus. You know, we were all waiting for this vaccine um, so that life can start again. And uh, Salk you know, in this incredible fashion, found this vaccine. And then uh, he famously said, um, you can't patent sunlight. And so he gave the vaccine away for free. And some people say he would have been the richest man in the world. Um, so he that's the kind of guy he was. And he became incredibly famous in the mid fifties. And he didn't particularly like that fame. And he ended up moving to La Jolla, California, uh, right by San Diego. And while he was there, he married the only woman to have ever left Picasso. <laughs> and he met all these really interesting thinkers in Southern California in the, in the late 60s in particular. And actually, just as those first images were coming back from the Apollo missions, Earthrise, the famous image from Apollo 8, came at the right at the end of 1968, uh, beginning of 69. Salk ended up stumbling upon this idea of the sigmoid, a sigmoid curve, in which he saw human population going through this profound transformation. And his maverick genius arose once again. But this time, that idea wasn't picked up. And I think it was an idea well, well ahead of its time. 
So our endeavor is to bring that unknown genius of Salk and, and his son, Jonathan, who was uh, an anthropologist at the time, to the world. Uh, <laughs> trying to create a bit of a lure there as well, Dave. <laughs> no, it's, it, it's an extraordinary story, but it's a challenge to us. There's a gauntlet being tossed here about choices. And we're, we're going to be talking about the, the themes of the great divergence that we're currently going through. Actually, Dr. Salk and Jonathan, his son's uh, insights as, as additive to it, really leave us with a set of choices that we need to make about where we're going into the future. And we are in the midst of that. It was somewhat prophetic when he when he first published his initial thoughts on this almost 50 years ago, almost as if he knew we would be where we are right now. And we're finding ourselves living it out on a day-to-day basis about how we deal with systems. And I'm talking ecological systems and food systems and population systems and how we trade with one another and do commerce with one another and conflict with one another. It's an extraordinary insight. And I think that we are really joining together, you and me and our organizations, to bring forward a, a tremendous message of hope about the possibilities of human choice and what can occur into the future. Wouldn't you say, Guy? Very much so. Very much so. And I think, I think unfortunately, we are entranced by dystopia culturally. Mm-hmm. Um, for good reason. I mean, <laughs> if you look at the last report by the IPCC, the International Panel on Climate Change, it is very bleak. And we're in a situation where, you know, the, the life support systems for our civilization, for human civilization, and a huge amount of the biodiversity that we're now embedded, their, their future is embedded with ours. You know, it's, a, it's business as usual really does lead to a dystopia of proportions which most people don't want to look at, understandably. But Salk points to a very different horizon. It's kind of gone out of fashion to talk about utopia, um, and it's almost become a, a pejorative. But I think we need to have a North Star. We need to have a way of seeing the future where we are able to adapt and become a new species in some respects, or certainly our birthright as a species, as a socially evolved primate, we, we, we were able to find balance with our, our fellow humans, but also the biosphere and our, and our planetary home as well. And Salk, I think, points to this. And I'm particularly interested in it because um, when I first found out about the idea, there's often a simple way of thinking about the Ovia effect the astronauts go through, which is they have a starting position that the world is the... Uh, the world of the flat two-dimensional geopolitical map that we get on the classroom wall. Um, We're all very familiar with that. And that's our sort of starting point of the world, quote unquote. But the experience of going to space, certainly the Apollo uh, mission, but but pretty much all astronauts and cosmonauts and taikonauts, which are the Chinese, it's to see this singular interconnected biosphere that's alive, teeming with life, and it feels alive. It looks alive. And so it's a very different starting point. And so I think when we change that starting point, the future can look very, very different. And Salk, I think, described this change, what he called from Epoch A to Epoch B, which was uh, 
essentially described in those two maps. That description that Salt came up with, um, for me, was the best way of thinking about that I'd found what had happened to the astronauts. So that's kind of where I got involved and, and interested. And, and one of the things that I'd thought about before was what would it look like if everyone had this perspective that the astronauts have? What would it look like? It doesn't mean everyone becomes a saint or there's some kind of, <laughs> you know, the astronauts don't really, their personalities don't change or something. It's more that there's a, the given changes. The idea of home being the planet, the idea of every human being in some way kin, that becomes a given. Um, and this common future becomes a given. So I think Salt brilliantly talks about that. And it, and, it, and it lays out, as you said, a path that we can walk. And one is a path of death and one is a path of life. It's pretty much as simple as that. <laughs> yeah. It comes yeah. down to that. And so we are gathering in a couple of weeks uh, to do some world building together, along with a select group of advisors and large thinkers who are going to be actually gathering at the home of Dr. Jonas Salk. We are so thankful to the Salk family for opening the home for us to use. We're going to spend an entire day in a world-building session uh, with one another around this film that we're contemplating. I I can't even tell you how excited I am about that. It is, is just being together with brilliant people in an extraordinary place around a theme that we've been talking about here, a new reality. I'm telling you, it's kind of punctuating my whole year and it and, and it'll only be May. You know, that's kind of cool. I can't wait till the rest of the year comes along. <laughs> but what what uh, final words do you have for us as we contemplate this large future that we're we're all moving into? Well, I'm too very excited. And I think this I think the idea of world building and world building the future is something that can help us in the face of some of these larger crises, the environmental and social crises that we face. I think it comes down to this idea of the imaginary, which is something I've become increasingly interested in, which is it's a sociological concept about how we imagine the social whole. Uh, what are our values? What are our worldview? What, how do we understand our relationship to each other, to ourselves, and then to you know, our larger whole? We're in this really interesting time where there is this time crunch from climate and various other ecological aspects, but there's also this dawning awareness of our planetary home and our kinship with each other. And I'll, I'll just say one final story about one of my, my uh, great friends and amazing astronaut, Ron Garan. He, he was a F-16 pilot uh, during the Cold War. Uh, and then in the in the Gulf War, and he used to uh, actually put nuclear warheads onto his plane. And he was in West Germany, the tip of the spear. And he ended up on his second mission, flying and, and living in space for six months. And he he flew with two Russian astronauts, uh, cosmonauts. And he said that he was stood at the base of his rocket of this rocket, and there was the Russian flag and the American flag. And he looked at these guys, and he realized that one of them was a MiG twenty nine pilot who'd been doing exactly the same thing on the other side of the Iron Curtain, loading nuclear weapons. And so they were sort of sworn enemies, essentially. 
And they're now each other's, you know, they're godfathers to each other's kids. You know, Ron speaks Russian, drinks vodka in the banya. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, the, you know, the, the uh, Sergey, you know, has hamburgers with him in Texas. I mean, it's like, it's this wonderful, hopeful aspect. And, and when Ron came home, he came home with the Soyuz, which is the Russian, the old Russian system, actually, from the Apollo days. And he'd slam down into the desert you know, sort of laughably violent. <laughs> Even with a parachute, you slam pretty hard and dislocate things. And um, his spacecraft uh, rolled over and he looked out of the window and he'd been in space for six months. He looked out the window and he saw this sort of rolling plane and flowers and rocks. And he said, oh, I'm home. <sighs> yeah, I'm home. And he was in Kazakhstan. <laughs> hmm. So it wasn't an intellectual idea. He was home you know, and he was home with his people. And, and they were, you know, these Russian guys and Kazakh nomads come and put sort of adornment on you. And it's kind of part of the tradition. Uh, but he was home with his people, even though he's a guy from Yonkers, New York. And I think that's the key to our future, is that almost experiential knowledge. And I, and I don't think you have to go to space to have that. Um, it's a, mind, a mindset that we can all adopt. Just fantastic. Guy Reed, what a privilege to have you on This Is Design Intelligence. Thanks for being with me. Well, thank you, Dave. And uh, thanks to everyone on the Design Intelligence team. Thank you for joining us for this edition of This Is Design Intelligence. The producer is Laura Spells. The sound engineer is Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.